Folks, I want to share with you a sermon today that I preached in Mahia, Texas. And the deal is, I told some people that I'd record it, shout out to Columbus, Mississippi, and I didn't. I backed out. I was trying to set up the camera and because they didn't film it there. And then I'm like, you know, trust me on this, it feels really awkward filming yourself talk. So there's like so many layers of wrongness going on there and then throwing the fact that they don't know you're doing it. It seems like you're using them. So I backed out and somebody nudged me tonight about why I haven't updated my podcast. Shout out to Chris Stevens. So it hit me that I'll preach my sermon on the podcast and then all three of us can be at peace. I really couldn't be happier to be here today because this is my one favorite week that only comes once every four years in the United States of America that affords me my favorite opportunity to talk about my favorite subject. It's my favorite subject because it was Jesus' favorite subject. In fact, it was the subject that he came to talk to us about. Now, Jesus talked about a lot of subjects, but there was this one that he was really passionate about. You may think Jesus came to talk to us about truth. Now, Jesus loved truth. He mentioned it 27 times, but it wasn't his favorite subject. He loved to talk about personal ethics and morals and how we live, but that wasn't his favorite subject. He loved to talk about money, but that wasn't his favorite subject. He loved to talk about love, but even that wasn't his favorite subject. Some of us think that Jesus came to talk about our relationship with God. In fact, a huge misconception that's been alive in the church this past century is that Jesus came to give us a personal relationship with God, but he never even used that phrase once. His favorite subject, he mentioned it 119 times in the four short gospel accounts that we have of him, his favorite subject was the kingdom. And in fact, if if you have a Bible app on your phone or if you have a computer to pull it up on, then just put in a keyword search in the New Testament, search the word kingdom. You'll see it go through the whole story because the whole story went something like this. Before he was born, an angel told Mary that he would give him the throne of his father David and his kingdom would never end. And as soon as he was born, Magi came to worship the one born king of the Jews. And when he was coming of age, John the Baptist preached, repent for the kingdom of God has come near. And that was Jesus's message. Repent for the kingdom of God has come near. And he went and he healed people and he cast out demons and he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom. In fact, that's the word gospel is good news. At first it was one long phrase, the gospel of the kingdom. And then it just got shortened to gospel. And so he preaches the Sermon on the Mount. Kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. And he tells all these parables and they're all about the kingdom. The kingdom of God is like this. The kingdom of God is like this. The kingdom of God is like this. And when they crucified him, the entire ordeal surrounded the question as to whether or not he was king of the Jews. The charges they placed against him, he he claims to be the king. Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? They mocked him as king and then they put a sign over his head that said king of the Jews. And after he told his disciples to go preach the good news of the kingdom, the last question they asked him before he ascended into heaven was, Lord, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom? Now, from beginning to end, the story of Jesus is the story about how God became king. And if you miss that, you may be just a bit disenchanted with the whole thing. You know anybody that's become disenchanted lately? (laughs) 
I was talking to someone recently about current events who said they were tired of the politics. Now, I know that's a shocker that someone would say they were tired of the politics, but they said they had just lost faith in it all. What an interesting way to phrase it. Lost faith. And some of you in here have lost faith. And I'm here to tell you that if you've lost faith in that political system, you're in a great place. Because God never wanted you to have faith in that system. It's funny that people have had so much faith in human systems for thousands of years. You look back in the Bible in Genesis chapter 11. The first time in the Bible a civilization tried to do something great together, they said to each other, Come, let us make bricks and bake them hard. And they used bricks and stones and asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let's build a city for ourselves and a tower with its top in the sky, and let's make a name for ourselves. And the problem isn't that there's a bunch of people working together doing something. The problem is that the people began a system of using people in order to make their name great bricks were this like big technological leap and they realized they could make an infinite number of them and stack them and so if you can do that you can make some people brick makers and some people brick layers and other people brick haulers and other people are doing the mortar and you can create this system and then you have to have managers for that and you have to have bosses for that other people get to look over it all and be the ruler of it all this is the original corporate pyramid You know, God's never been a fan of pyramids. Very next chapter of the Bible in chapter 12 is when God calls a man to leave everything behind. Go live in a foreign land and he says, I will bless the world through you. And so begins the story of the people of Israel. God's kingdom has always grown right alongside the kingdoms of the world. And the kingdoms of the world, they rise up and they fall. Egypt, Babylon, Persia, Assyria, Rome, Britain, America. Any culture whose goal is to make a name for themselves, to bring safety, comfort, wealth, power to themselves. When it succeeds, it will inevitably spiral into accusations and turn inward on itself. Because here's how it works. For you to be more comfortable, somebody else has to always pay the price. You can't be sitting in your brand new luxury vehicle, drinking your latte and your brand new skinny jeans, pulling up in your three-car garage, your 3,000 square foot house, without somebody else somewhere having paid for that. When's the last time you thought about the Chinese factory workers that made your phone right we forget about all the people who contributed to our power all right we can't all live like that because the earth doesn't have enough resources to sustain it anyways for 7.3 billion people to live like that can't happen so we create a society where some people live like that it becomes a society of great injustice of haves and have-nots In a society of great injustice that wants to make a name for itself and build the people on top to be taller and taller will inevitably devolve into a culture of accusing and finger-pointing. Because of all the injustice going on, it becomes a culture of accountability. Do we live in a culture of accountability? 
I mean, we love the drama of a good lawsuit. We love Dateline. We love crime shows or even a good data analysis meeting at work, right? Like, I have meetings every week that if you get to the bottom of it, the root of why we're here is to go, well, something went wrong and some, or something's not as good as it could be. And so let's just analyze it and figure out how we can fix it and figure out who needs to do what so they can get better. Like, how many stories do you see on the news where, like, something went wrong And now we're trying to figure out why. It's like every other story on the news. And here's why it happens in a group like that, in a culture of extreme accountability, less powerful people in the room always retreat into self-defense and they absorb more of the responsibility for the problem so that they can keep their place as it is because they don't want to lose it. And the more powerful people that we appointed to lead us inevitably get to be the ones who sort of brush by and forgive their own sins a little bit more and they ultimately force others to pay the price for all the small ways ways that they haven't contributed. And so in this culture, accusers, people who use their strength to lord themselves over others, end up inevitably becoming the most powerful people. You know what Satan's name is? Literally means the accuser. Does the nation that we live in have accusers at the top of its pyramid? Let me be real. Americans created the two candidates that are running for presidents. Accusers always rise to power in a kingdom trying to make a name for itself. And it's why if we want something different, we've got to follow a different type of leader. A leader who doesn't operate from a position of strength, who holds everyone else accountable and forgives his own sins. We need a leader who operates from a position of weakness, who forgives everyone else's sins and holds his own self accountable for it all. So I want to tell you about a different kind of kingdom. Now I want to go through a couple of myths about the kingdom first, and then I want to tell you three things about the kingdom. The first myth is that the kingdom of God is heaven. Now, it's easy to think this because one entire gospel, Matthew, calls it the kingdom of heaven. Now, Matthew preferred to call it that, but he meant the kingdom of God. It's the same thing in all the parallel gospels. And it doesn't translate well. In the original language, it would have been more as understood as the kingdom from heaven, like the place where God lived. It's the kingdom from God. It's a synonym, the same thing. Probably the most misunderstood is John 18, 36, where he says, My kingdom is not of this world. And so it kind of like grew up thinking that Jesus was saying, Now keep your God in your Sunday box. And I have this parallel universe right here. And you see it's the one that matters. You'll be okay when you die, so don't worry about it. But listen to him. He says in that verse, 1836, My kingdom is not from this world. My kingdom is from another place. John's saying that my kingdom doesn't originate with following the power structures that the rest of the world followed. I was sent from God to bring a a kingdom that could not be a human kingdom because humans don't build kingdoms like this. Now, I could go on and on with that point, but just listen to Jesus' most famous prayer. He said, let your name be holy, Let your kingdom come and let your will be done where? On earth, just as it is in heaven. And Jesus didn't come to get people from earth and take them to heaven as much as he came to bring heaven to earth. And the second myth 
is that the kingdom of God is metaphysical, like it's a metaphor, like it's just this abstract, ethereal idea that just means that he's winning hearts. And and so it might be easy to think this too, because Jesus refers to it as a pearl of great price, or a treasure hidden in a field that you pass by and don't even notice. And some of us read that and we think that like the kingdom is like that diamond necklace on the movie Titanic that Rose holds dear to her heart for her entire life until the old lady rose quietly throws it back into the ocean like it's this precious sweet hidden jewel that we keep hidden and that's not Jesus point there he said a city on a hill can't be hidden when he's talking about the treasure his point is people are going to walk by it all the time without thinking anything about it they'll dismiss it as no big deal just like the ancient Romans did with them they'll they'll carry on as usual like ah oh, it's just a bunch of religious people doing their thing no big deal but in reality something they should have paid attention to. Now, the third myth is the kingdom of God is observable. Now, this is sort of the opposite of the last myth. This is the idea behind Christendom and the Crusades, that it was the most popular idea in Jesus' day. So there was this Pharisee who came to Jesus and asked when the kingdom of God would come. And Jesus said, the kingdom of God isn't something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is or there it is, for the kingdom of God is among you. It's already here and you didn't even notice. It's within you. It's what those parables were about, that it's right before people's eyes and they're not even seeing it. Which brings me to ask the question, do you see it? I am amazed at the number of people that I've heard in church, we're going to say things like, I'm so worried about what's going to happen. I mean, like, how many statements have you heard that's like, well, if he gets elected, I just don't know what we're going to do. Well, if she gets elected, that's it. Moving to Canada. I mean, <laughs> come on. I mean, really? Like, I don't think you see the kingdom. And he wants you to see it. God, give us the eyes of Jesus to see the thing that you came to announce. And let us see it more clearly than ever. Open our eyes so that we can see the kingdom right here among us. I want to tell you three things about what the kingdom of God actually is. Uh, If we forget what the kingdom uh, is, then some of us are going to be a mess this week. Now, over a hundred years ago, there was a, a man in New York that designed the Christian flag. You've seen it flying around white with a little blue square and a red cross in it, uh, which I used to believe is really silly. I mean, come on, a Christian flag. But I really now, I don't think Jesus would be that upset that we created a Christian flag. I think he would be way more upset at the fact that everybody puts it below the American flag. And if you think I'm reading too much into this, then tell me why it made it on the national news on Fox and Friends when a pastor in South Carolina put the Christian flag above the American flag. And we grew up in a world that taught us that America and Christianity were like peanut butter and jelly. Like, you kind of have to have one to make the other one taste good. But the Bible seems like they're a lot more like peanut oil and water. I mean, you can mix them for a little while, but they're always going to find a way to separate back out in the end. You know, the first thing that I want to say about the kingdom, though, is that the kingdom is political. It's as political 
as the Boston Tea Party. It's as political as the national elections this week. Jesus came to announce a kingdom and everything about Jesus' story was political. So if you skip from the Tower of Babel all the way to 1 Samuel, it's the very first time when the the country that Jesus was raised in, the, the nation of Israel, first formed a kingdom. It was a political kingdom, an actual country with actual borders, laws, and leaders. And you read in 1 Samuel 8, it says, So all the Israel, uh, all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You're old and your sons don't follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. You hear what they're saying? They're saying, Egypt's beaten us in trade. Philistia's beating us in trade. They're smarter than us. We got a weak leader. We got to make Israel great. Come on, Samuel. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you, but it's not you they've rejected. They've rejected me as their king. He says, if you want a king, You know what he's going to do? He's going to take your sons and use them for his armies to make his weapons, plowing his harvest. He's going to tax you, take your best olive trees and your best animals and all of your best of what you have to use it for him. God says, you want a king like that? I want to be your king. This is a real nation that Jesus grew up in. The idea of separation of church and state in Jesus' day was laughable. They would have not had any clue what that even meant. But God gives them what they want. And two generations later, King Solomon is building the most magnificent building in the history of the nation, Israel's own Tower of Babel. It is huge, and it is magnificent, and they're making the other nations pay for it. They slapped God's name on it, even though he told them he didn't need a temple. And you know what they built it with? Foreign slaves. They have become the very thing that God had set them free from when he set them free from Egypt. They have lost the identity of their story. And every prophet in the Bible that spoke out after that spoke out to address a political establishment that God had a message for. And when Jesus was killed, what was the one act that set it all off? He said, I'll destroy the temple and rebuild it. And when Jesus went into Jerusalem, that was his mission. He was on a suicide mission. He went into a place where he knew he was going to die. He went into a politically tense place on the most politically charged week of the years, the Passover. It was a holiday celebrating freedom from an oppressive government. Get this. And as the Jews are celebrating The Roman soldiers are standing guard over the Jews walking around the top of the temple, looking through the towers, watching them as this mob of Jews celebrate freedom from an oppressive government underneath the oppressive government. One scholar said, it's not amazing that Jesus got killed doing what he did in the temple. It's amazing that he lasted until Friday. It was a political stunt, but it was a completely backwards approach to politics. Notice who he didn't overthrow. He didn't overthrow the Romans. He didn't go pick a fight with the centurions. He didn't go to march on the Roman mall in front of Caesar's palace. He had a different idea because he had a different idea of power. He went to his own nation to say, look, we're the one that's been called in this story to be a light to the nations, and you're trying to be like them. Quit it. 
let me bring this down to earth. Anytime a group of people think that the solution is to fix another group of people, they will never find peace. Anytime one party, one group thinks that the solution begins with exerting their will over another party, we're in a bad place because the only people we can change is us. Jesus understood real power. And that's why my second is that the kingdom of God is powerful. See, Jesus understood that real and lasting power doesn't come from manipulation, coercion, from strength, but it comes from introspection, from self-sacrifice, from washing someone's feet. And that's why the earliest Christian song said he made himself nothing. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. You know, come to think of it, maybe we should leave the Christian flag below the American flag. It seems like the kingdom always does its best work from the bottom. Love conquers hate from the bottom up every time. Three years ago, uh, Beth went to Haiti, and there was this one village there called Larat. It was the most evil place that we've ever been. You could just feel the evil when you drove up. Um, It was infested with voodoo. People did not want the Christians there. A mob of about 150 people came out to run off Beth's group the first time they visited, yelling curses and throwing things. But the Vanderpools, the missionaries there, just kept going. They would go visit every week because there was a 42-year-old woman there named Annette. She was just over four feet tall. She couldn't talk. She was covered in dirt. She just grunted. She was a special need. She was um, mentally had all kinds of things going on. They just kept her locked in a pig barn. They didn't know what to do with her. They would beat her. They would laugh at her. They would rape her. They would spit on her. And the Vanderpools would show up. They would pray over her. They would feed her crackers and water. And they would bless her. She was blind. She couldn't see them. She would get excited and start grunting whenever they showed up. And several months later, when I went, they had gone every week. There was a crowd that yelled at us, and they laughed at her. They didn't run us off. They just yelled some things. And they kept going week after week after week. And then this year, in June, when we visited Annette for the very first time, She wasn't locked up in a pig barn anymore. And a couple of the people smiled at us. And they weren't laughing at her anymore. And that entire village had begun to feel different. Like evil is starting to leave. Because love shows up. This is power when people of God lay themselves out on the line for others. Think about it. If there was one person who had perhaps the greatest impact on freedom and equal rights for African Americans, who was it? President? A lawmaker? I'll tell you the only name my kids at school can tell you is that assassinated preacher named Martin Luther King. But what about Jesus? (laughs) Jesus Christ. Pontius Pilate asked him, Don't you realize I have power to release you or to crucify you? And Jesus said, well, you wouldn't have any power over me if it weren't given to you from above. And now, 2,000 years later, there are 2 billion 
people on planet Earth who call themselves Christians. And I just have to ask, where's the Roman Empire? Are there still any uh, rulers in the world named Caesar? Uh, Got any of those around? What Jesus did in one week far outlasted what ruler after ruler after dictator after president has tried to do. I'm with Shane Claiborne. He says, it's time to turn off the TVs and pick up our Bibles and let's reimagine the world. Jesus said, repent and believe the good news. The good news isn't CNN headline news. It's not Fox News. It's not MSNBC or CBS or ABC. And some of us need to turn from that news and believe the good news. The good news that Jesus is the Messiah. That in him, God is reconciling the world to himself and reclaiming the lost sons and daughters of the one true king. I'm asking you to believe it. I want to share this word to you that my preacher Rick shared with me. It was 1939 and Great Britain was uh, watching the events unfold with Adolf Hitler in Germany and they knew it was highly possible that England would in fact be invaded. The uh, Ministry of Information had a series of three posters that they printed to try to boost morale in the country. They printed millions of them and they were going to hang them all around London and the countryside. And the first one said, Freedom is in peril. Defend it with all your might. And the second one said, your courage, your cheerfulness, your resolution will bring us victory. And the third one, the third one they never used. They had saved it back in warehouses in case that the invasion had happened or in the event that London was bombed or gassed. There were over two million copies of it printed and they never got placed out. But it just simply had a picture of the crown of the king on it and just said, keep calm. And carry on. That's my word to us today. Remember who's on the throne. Just keep calm and carry on. Some of us will spend hours a week at the nursing home with people who have no one to listen to them. And you're doing the work of Jesus and you're nervous about what's going on and happening out there. I'm just saying, just keep calm and carry on. Some of us are working down at the nonprofit, at the shelter. We're seeing homeless people on the weekends. We're hanging out with the poorest in our community. And we've got this sense that the system is oppressing them and making it even worse and worse. And we've learned how to advocate them. And we're nervous about what's going on in the government. But just, you're doing the work of Jesus. Just keep calm and carry on. You know who's on the throne. And Some of us, we work at schools and we sit they're day in, day out, nose to the grindstone, and all these people are barking out things about test scores. But you know you're the only person that some of your kids have who will listen to them. And you know that that's what really needs to happen and what matters. Just carry on. Keep being who you're being because when you're being like Jesus, that's power. And when you're being like Jesus, you know that you're part of a kingdom that is permanent. And that's the third thing I wanted to say. Jesus didn't come riding into Jerusalem on a donkey in order to cast a ballot to fix the next four years. He came to cast people out of the way who were trying to rule in the place of God because God doesn't need any rulers. He was everlasting to everlasting. He's the beginning and the end. God didn't rule from Rome. He didn't rule from Cairo. He didn't rule from Babylon. He doesn't rule from Moscow and he doesn't rule from Washington. 
Washington, D.C. He rules from the same place he was ruling from the first time humans tried to build a tower to him, and he's ruling there today. He's going to be ruling there this Tuesday. He's going to be ruling there this January and eight years from now and 800 years from now because his kingdom is permanent, and it does not depend on our vote. Revelations eleven fifteen. Revelation eleven fifteen says, "The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Messiah, and He will reign forever and ever." And Revelation five ten, he says, "You've made them to be a kingdom." and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. We get to reign with them. Then I looked, he says, and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and in a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever I'm here to tell you today that another world is possible another world is necessary because another world is already here